Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. Mr. Donald Trump, you know on this show, if you listen regularly, there was a huge amount of support for Donald Trump. Leading up to the election on the 8th of November of 2016, there was a tremendous amount of support. I'd say 90% of our callers were supportive of Trump because it was just this fed upness with the same old, same old, the same media bias, the same left-wing politics, the same old, same old. So populism really took hold. We saw it in UK, in the UK with Brexit, and uh, it may be resurrecting itself in Germany. And we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. So how are things going for the president of the United States heading into Christmas of 2017? Uh, Rasmussen polling, and we spend a lot of time talking to Fran, of course, at uh, Rasmussen, they've got 58% of Americans, 58% of Americans are saying that uh, if the president of the United States is proven to have been sexually harassing the women who say he harassed them sexually, then he should resign. So that's from Rasmussen. And then there's the story that Robert Mueller, the former FBI director, who's chasing after any sort of hand-holding between Putin and, and Trump. Uh, there's this, I'll just read you these lines from Reuters. An organization established for U.S. President Donald Trump's transition to the White House a year ago said on Saturday that the special counsel investigating allegations of Russian meddling in the 2016 election had obtained tens of thousands of emails unlawfully. Gloria Langhover, counsel to the transition team, known as Trump for America, wrote a letter to congressional committees to say special counsel Robert Mueller's team had improperly received the emails from the General Services Administration. That's a government agency. All right. So how much trouble, how much trouble is Donald Trump in, if he is? His popularity or his approval ratings are certainly not what he would like, but we shall see what we shall see, right? Dave, uh, Dan Gaynor is the vice president of culture and business of the Media Research Center, and he joins us from the United States. Mr. Gaynor, thank you for the time. Oh, it's a pleasure. I would say things are going better for Trump than the media want to tell you and worse than the people who voted for him hoped. But uh, Washington is not an 800-pound gorilla. It's more like an 800-billion-pound gorilla, and it's hard to wrestle. Well, I just uh, this morning I was thinking about who's against Trump, and I thought right, everybody who's in the mainstream media everybody who lines up with uh, Schumer and with Pelosi, everybody who, uh, everybody who doesn't see some value in reorganizing, rearranging the political bias and the same old, same old, they're all going to be against Trump. That leaves the rest of the people. Is that a fair assessment? Well, yeah, I would say so. I, you look, at, look at Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. is, in theory, the capital of the country, but in practice, it's a, a left-wing enclave. And 93% voted for Hillary Clinton. Uh, that means all the top agencies in government are staffed with uh, liberals who vote for Democrats. All the top news organizations are staffed with liberals who vote for, vote for Democrats. It, it, you know, it's a system that feeds on itself and doesn't want any change. They don't, they don't want Trump to take down regulation, which he's been doing, which even the New York Times acknowledges is one of the big successes of his, of his presidency. They don't want him to fill the U.S. government with, with conservative judges, which yeah. 
another major success of his presidency. Well, it was a pretty bad situation on Thursday. Yeah, I mean, that's, look, you, you pile on judges. He's already filled, and I'm going to get the, t- the type of, he's already filled more top judge, judicial openings in the first year than any other president. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, you know, that's a, you're going to have bad days. Uh, it, you have to look at the batting average. Oh, yeah, I look at, I, I don't disagree with that. You have to look at what's going on. I'll tell you something else, I think, is that the enemies of Donald Trump, and there are many, the, the longer he's in power, the longer he's in the Oval Office, the more easy it becomes for people to say President Trump. Not Trump, Donald Trump, Trump this, Trump that. It becomes easier for people to say President Trump. It becomes more, it flows off the tongue more easily than it might have six or eight months ago. This is not what they want. They don't want, they don't want people to be comfortable saying President Trump. Oh, yeah, they try to do everything they can to prevent that normalizing the Trump presidency. Mm-hmm. And that's and they hate it when media do that. But the reality is he won the election. Yep. He won the election because that's our system. And if Hillary had won the election, that would have been our system. And conservatives would be unhappy with it, but we would move on and we'd try to beat her in 2018 with, with uh, House and Senate races and beat her again in 2020. But but the, the media assault, and there's I guess you, there's worse words than that, but, but the, basically the media are doing everything they can to overturn the results uh, by uh, what I would like to call the Chinese water torture approach. Mm-hmm. And that is an endless drip, drip, drip of news, much of it completely phony, and they don't care. Whether, it's, whether they're misreporting, as Dave Weigel from the Washington Post did, uh, how many people attend an event in Florida, whether the Washington Post is claiming that Russia hacked the power grid, which it didn't. And you, know, you could just go down the line of all these misreported stories. The CNN disaster from a week ago, where they, they actually got, the, got a date wrong. And CBS got it wrong. I think it may have been MSNBC as well. They all miraculously got it from the same sources, but they won't tell us who the sources were, and they won't tell us what other stories those sources have influenced that might also have been wrong. Yeah, Mr. Gaynor, though, isn't it, wouldn't you say that Donald Trump actually assists those in the media who want to knock him off the the, the, the office chair, off the chair in the, in the Oval Office with his tweeting and some of the things that he says, he actually provides them with ammunition. Instead of letting them run dry, he gives them new stuff on a regular basis. Well, except he gives them the new stuff he wants to give them, by and large. So he's controlling uh, the dialogue. Gonna, well, I was going to say, they're not going to run dry. They, mm-hmm. will, they will do uh, whatever they have to to set the agenda against Trump. Mm-hmm. So by Trump providing them with uh, topics, I, a, a great example is the whole war against the NFL. His comments about the NFL uh, really hurt the NFL, but put Trump in the position where he's defending a position, frankly, that is the majority position in this country, that people don't want to see the players protesting the national let me ask. Let me ask you this. Is Robert Mueller's investigation fair and balanced? I don't want to use Fox's term, but fair and balanced, or is it something far less than that? And did you believe... The, the, the story about the thousands and thousands of emails that they obtained uh, unlawfully, and we already know that an FBI agent and his friend uh, both were dismissed from Mueller's group because of their blatantly anti-Trump uh, attitudes and emails they tweeted. But is Mueller's, is Mueller's investigation fair? Um, it certainly 
gives the impression that it's not. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I don't know without without being without having the imp- the ability to really dig into it and interview people and talk to people involved. Uh, uh, you know, people say, "Well, the conservatives are under, are undermining the credibility of the Mueller investigation." No, Mueller's investigation has undermined the credibility of Mueller's investigation. And so, on the surface, it certainly appears unfair when you have uh, nine of the seventeen lawyers on your investigation have personally donated to Democrats. Uh, you know, uh, how how are Republicans supposed to view that as potentially neutral? Yeah, no, it doesn't and, seem that way. It doesn't. And, and then when you look at some of the comments that came out in the the text messages between Strzok and and uh, the young lady, uh, the the comments really look like this was a political hit job. And you know, then you look at their Strzok's involvement in other other aspects of Mueller's investigations, and it's hard for conservatives or Republicans, and the two are often not the same. But it's hard for either group to look at this and say this is something that I'm going to trust the results of. You're listening to the Roy Green Show weekends from two to five on AM 900 CHML. The uh, senator elect from Alabama, the uh, Democrat, has uh, has said that he would probably be voting with the GOP, with the Republicans, at least from time to time. The guy's not even in his seat yet. He's talking about voting with the Republicans. It wasn't a good weekend last weekend for Donald Trump after he endorsed Roy Moore. I'm talking with uh, Dan Gaynor, Vice President of Culture and Business at the Media Research Center in the United States. Mr. Gaynor, what happened? Is, that, is this an a... The, the fact that uh, the Moore did not win, does this reflect on Donald Trump? Does this reflect on Moore? Well, I mean, I think it reflects on Moore and the media. They, you know, look, uh, the Washington Post dropped its story after the GOP could replace Moore, uh, just conveniently timing, uh, after the GOP could replace Moore, and they were stuck. Uh, remember Donald Trump back <laughs> strange uh, in, the, in the primary? Yeah, I do. And, and so, you know, he went with the only choice he had. Uh, you know, that, that just happens. But you, you had almost the entirety of the American media descend on Alabama to try to choose the election. And I think this is, that's the number one complaint I hear from, from people in this country about the media, is that they're tired of the media deciding everything for them. So tell me this, please. Uh, tell me this, please. I need to understand this. Why is the American media, mainstream media, virtually and it's an egotistical crew, why are they so almost unanimously anti-Donald Trump? Why? Well, I mean, they're, they're unanimously liberal on almost everything. So it's not just anti-Donald Trump. It's, anti, it's, it's pro-abortion. It's anti-tax uh, cuts. It's so there's no objectivity. There's really no objectivity in the mainstream media in the United States. Yeah, well, the mainstream media is not mainstream. If you look at... No, Dallas, I know. That's they, a good point. The, the majority, the, there are more conservatives than there are liberals. And, you know, if you, if you look at the, the numbers, I think it's something like 35% conservative and 28% liberal in this country, and everybody else falls in between. Mm-hmm. But for the media, they fall in the middle of that... 28% liberal. Let me ask you this, and we have about two minutes left. What happens if there's a tremendous push from the left, and God knows what else could happen? Um, what happens if, there, if there's a really serious effort made, um, more serious than the trying now, to remove Donald Trump from the White House? What happens? What happens to your society? 
Well, I mean, well, first of all, they have to win the House to even push that. I get so it. That means they have to win in 2018. Then they won't really push it because that's just they because the American public don't want that. So if they really want it, they want to have a you know big 2020 uh, some sort of election about uh, whether we impeach you know whether we impeach Trump. Then I think what will happen. I saw somebody putting forth this theory is. The left win if they win in 2018, then they slow walk impeachment because they can't really do it mm-hmm. and not have it hurt them. And then uh, we get to 2020. Though they, they, you know, the Democrats nominate somebody really radical in response to that, and Trump wins. I, I would, you know, I think people count Donald Trump out way too fast just because the media live in a bubble. And when you look at what he's accomplished, he's accomplished actually a fair number of things. You know, to get this tax cut passed. He'll accomplish something else. I just want to tell you this. As early as February of last year, I said Donald Trump was going to win. And in January, I said, there's no way he can lose. I'm sorry, in July, I said, there's no way he can lose. And you know what convinced me? It was my callers. I know they're Canadian, but there was such a def- definite f- fatigue with the same old, same old, the same old stuff from Obama, the same old stuff from the left. There was just even people who were who were liberal were calling and saying, "We can't take it anymore," or "We don't want to take it anymore." And there was a, there was a, uh, an almost ninety percent, maybe even more than ninety percent, support rate for Donald Trump from this country, from people in this country calling this program. Mister um, Skinner, thank you very much for the time. I hope you'll come back. Oh, it's been a pleasure. It's actually fun talking to neighbors we like so much. So uh, just let me know, and I'll be happy to do it. All right, I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Dan Gator. Vice President of Culture and Business at the Media Research Center. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. So here we are in December, and we're starting, or we've already started, with the flu and the cold season. It's one or the other, and for the really unfortunate, it's going to be both. And we ask ourselves constantly, what do we do? What can we do? What should we do? What is possible for us? We hear answers, and then by the time the next season rolls around, we've forgotten what the answers are. Jason Tetro is the germ, the germ guy. His books are uh, The Germ Code. And hang on, Jason, don't say anything. I know what it is. It is The Germ Files. And it's great to have you back on the show. It's good to be here. And my goodness, are you feeling okay? No, I'm not. No, I'm not. I. I'm just a regular guy, you know. We get we get a little bit of a sniffle. We get the flu. We want everybody to feel sorry for us. Well, I mean, there there actually, believe it or not, is a reason um, why we call it the man cold because um, men actually do have uh, less of an immunity, especially in times like uh, the winter if we start to get cold, uh, and that means that the viruses that affect us. Uh, end up making things worse, and so we actually do end up feeling worse. I'm not we just found that, that out, didn't we? I mean, that, that information was just released, wasn't it? Uh, well, it's been around for a number of years, but uh, they're, they're, the research is continuing to show that. Uh, so, you know, you, you do have an actual excuse as a man to be able to say that, you know, I'm, I'm really suffering and be, you know, very moany and groany. Unfortunately, that's the only time you can do that. So unless you're sick the whole time, uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what's the difference then between a cold and a flu? Because they're both viral, are they not? Yeah, for the most part, um, the flu uh, is, is only uh, limited to your lungs. And, uh, you know, one of the best ways to think about it is, you know, you have like a gorilla or an elephant sitting on your chest. It's so hard to breathe. 
there, there's fluid in there, and it's just making life really uh, difficult. Uh, and, of course, you're going to have a little bit of the fevering and stuff like that, but it's really about the lungs. When you have a cold, it's mainly what we call the upper respiratory tract, so it's your sinuses, your throat, that type of thing. Um, and you have a lot more sniffling that's going on, and uh, for the most part, you know, you're going to have the coughing that comes with it, but it's not going to be as severe. Um, you know, it, it, it's more like a, a timber cough as opposed to a base cough when you're, uh, when you're sick with the flu. So what can we do? We hear all of these chicken soup and throw some scotch in it. We hear all of these, <laughs> all of these wonderful recipes. What can we do? Is, is it really a case of waiting it out? Yeah, for the most part, um, you know, it's it's funny when you talk to uh, the medical professionals, they say, well, the best thing we can do is called supportive therapy. And what that really means is we're going to try and make your life feel better while you're waiting it out because that's pretty much all you can do with viruses. Now, when it comes to things like chicken soup, uh, you know, vitamin D, vitamin C, these types of things, what they're doing is they're helping to support your immune system to keep it as balanced as possible while you're going through it. Uh, you know, there have been some studies that show that, you know, vitamin D can reduce the, the, the time that it takes for you to resolve a cold. Uh, we've also heard of, you know, taking probiotics in order to be able to do this. I mean, the, the, the information is out there, but at the end of the day, it's not like it's going to either prevent you from getting something or, uh, you know, making it go away within a day or two instead of maybe the three to five that normally would happen. Okay. Jason, uh, you and I talked uh, about two months ago about the stories that were circulating from the World Health Organization and from uh, the, the head of, uh, of the um, uh, health bureaucracy in the UK. You know this better than they do. But they were talking about uh, health care not being as efficient or as effective as it has been. The word Armageddon was used by the, the Brit rep. I think it was the Brit rep. And that is because antibiotics, not nearly as effective as they were because the bugs, the germs, have become so resistant to uh, to the antibiotics. Is this something we're going to be seeing more and more and more of, where they, we will fall back to to uh, treatments that are not nearly as effective, and uh, we'll be sick longer? Yeah, uh, when we're talking about antibiotic resistance, of course, we're only talking about the bacterial infections. So this isn't the colds or the flus. These are things like the strep throats that we've been hearing about. Mm -hmm. And one of the major problems is that um, these bacteria, not only do they have the capability of being able to resist the antibiotics, but now what we're starting to see uh, is bacteria that have acquired what we call virulence factors. In other words, it makes them worse. Now, in the UK, they've been having a massive problem with scarlet fever, and that's actually due to the fact that the bacteria that's circulating around has adapted a couple of uh, these virulence factors, and so the scarlet fever is rampant. Now, in Canada, and this has happened more specifically in Ontario, but it may spread, um, there's another kind of uh, bacterium that causes strep throat, uh, group A streptococcus, as we call it. But it's adopted um, uh, a few of these virulence factors, which allows it to get into the bloodstream. And once that happens, you can actually end up with a number of major problems in other areas of the body, including, uh, as I know you've probably heard about, flesh-eating disease. Yeah. Yeah. So the yeah. thing is, um, the more that we're seeing resistance 
to antibiotics, mm-hmm. the more we're going to see these um, different strains adopting these greater virulence factors because, quite honestly, they don't care. Now you're scaring, um, now you're scaring me. Well, now you are scaring me. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't really mean. No, no, no. I think it's important that we know this, have this information. Jason, I've got to run. I appreciate the time always. Thank you so much. I actually have an idea for another conversation with you. The Germ Guy, Jason Tetro, the author of The Germ Code and The Germ Files. Thank you, Jason. It was a pleasure. Take care. All the best, Jason Tetro. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. For the first time since winning the 2015 federal election, Justin Trudeau's approval ratings dropped below 50% nationally. That according to Angus Reid polling. But he is still significantly ahead of Andrew Scheer and Jagmeet Singh. But the question is, is there a crack developing in Justin Trudeau's support? And have the Cotter payoff, the Morneau mess, the ethics investigation begun to harm him? Or is it just something that happens halfway through a mandate? That's a good question, isn't it? And uh, just looking at some numbers here from Angus Reid, um, 46% of Canadians say it's time for a change in government. 32% say Justin Trudeau should be elected. So 46% say it's time for a change in government. 32% say Trudeau should be reelected. So to put all of this into perspective for us, Shaki Curl from Angus Reid, Vice President of Angus Reid. Hi, Shaki. Hi, Roy. How are you? Well, I've had better days, but that's that's not that important. But thank you for asking. I've got the bug. So can you give us the perspective, please, on Trudeau's national approval sinking below 50% for the first time since um, since 2015? Is it the China trade? Is it Morno? Is it the Cotter payoff? Is it uh, any number of those issues or something else? Probably a combination. I do get asked that question a lot. They say, Shachi, what is going on here? And, um, you know, it has not been the greatest of falls for the Trudeau government. Uh, I think people within the ranks of government would would, uh, admit that quite freely. They have been uh, bedeviled and distracted and beset by the woes of uh, their finance minister, Bill Morneau. They have had uh, ongoing issues with uh, trying to roll out and then later sell these small business tax changes, which uh, they've ended up dancing away from, and even in a, in a uh, backed-off, watered-down version of this legislation, um, the rollout is still something that is causing a great deal of consternation to, uh, to small business owners. And, of course, all of that is just it's, it's bad publicity, it's bad press. And there, and there was one particular uh, moment this fall where, the government actually had a very moving, very, um, very non-political uh, moment in in the House of Commons when they uh, passed their their motion and legislation around uh, LGBTQ uh, rights, and 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 there was the apology and all of those things. Um, that was a day that their own finance minister basically did the political equivalent of scoring an own goal. That was a day when government should have been able to change the channel. They weren't able to change the channel because their own minister then started, you know, huffing and puffing about suing uh, conservative uh, opposition members when they started needling him and getting under his skin on on some of these uh, issues around his own assets and holdings and ethics and the rest of it. Um, they send Pierre Polyev out there, the conservatives do, to needle people. He's very good at that. 
and that was a day that Bill Morneau fell for the bait. Um, mm-hmm. It wasn't the first day. You combine that with things like the um, the lack of, of, of a clear purpose and success on the China mission. You combine that with ongoing concerns about what's going to happen in the next year without with cannabis legislation uh, and timelines around that. Uh, so the big picture, the big takeaway here is that Justin Trudeau's approval is suffering the impacts of what has not been a great fall for his government. So they are they are really uh, victims of their own self-inflicted gum shot wounds. Well, I mean, let's put it this way. The fact that he still has higher approval ratings, that is Justin Trudeau, than Conservative leader Andrew Scheer, than Jagmeet Singh, the fact that, that much of this has been a little bit... Um, you know, very much driven not so much by what the opposition is doing and presenting to Canadians as, as an alternative, but more about uh, doing what opposition does, which is sort of, you know, throwing flames. This is their job at the government of the day. Uh, says to me that in, in so far as this government's ability to stay on agenda, stay on task, they have been knocked off of that in the last part of 2020. Okay, so let me let me go the to another part of your poll. Is, can they can let me, they pivot? Can let me go to another poll part of your poll. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Trudeau disapproval ratings higher than those of Sheer or Singh. So how do we interpret this? Forty six percent of Canadians say it's time for a change of government. Thirty two percent say Justin Trudeau should be reelected. How does is that a national picture? Is that a truly national picture? Or is that a regional picture mostly? Well, the regions across the board, initially we started to see a softening in approval for Justin Trudeau in just certain parts of the country. Now that's pretty much across the board. But I would say this, Roy, very important to remember, and you raise a good point, and I, I'm going to take a moment to really reiterate this for uh, your your audience across the country. Um, just because a politician has higher disapproval numbers than other politicians doesn't mean much because this is mostly accounted for by the fact that Canadians just don't really have a clue who Andrew Scheer nor Jagmeet Singh are. They don't know who these people are. So the disapproval numbers are not as high because more people are saying, actually, we don't know who these people are. In the case of Justin Trudeau, he has been a very strong brand. He has literally been the front man for this liberal government for the better part of two years. And so Canadians are pretty, uh, they're pretty decided about the guy. They either like him or they don't like him, but very few are saying we don't know much about him. In the case of Sheer and Singh, uh, what you find is that they are very much an unknown quantity. Now, if you're an opposition leader, if you are Sheer or if you are Singh, you're not necessarily that keen to be established uh, in, in a really known way in the minds of Canadians. Sometimes there's a benefit to sort of being this unknown quality. Yeah, I'd agree. I'd agree you know, with that. That yep. unknown factor so that you can sort of define yourself during the campaign particularly, and not allow... Particularly enough, now, with a yeah. relatively short period of time that they've had to be mm-hmm. on the national political stage. It's early, early, early days for these guys. Yeah. yeah. So if there's one piece of advice for... Is there an encompassing piece of advice for all of them? <laughs> that comes out of this poll. Well, that, that's what they pay their strategists for. <laughs> but I mean, the the one the one takeaway I would sort of remind everyone of. I, I saw uh, Jerry Butts tweeting about the fact that you know here's a pro tip: don't pay attention to the polls in response to our poll. Here's the deal: 
Um, yeah, that's true to an extent, particularly with two years left in the mandate, uh, because two years is 200 years in the lifetime of politics. But if any, if any strategist or politician tells you they're not paying attention, well, that, that may or may not be entirely true, but also important not to sort of take this as gospel for what we will see in 2019, because that is a lifetime away. And on issues, for example, around government spending or about the, the liberals perhaps not doing the greatest job of connecting with middle-class Canadians, particularly around these tax changes and some other issues in recent months. Really important to remember that even though the opposition may have a compelling narrative saying, hey, these Liberals are not the people standing up for you, middle-class Canadian, we don't know that that's actually going to be the deciding and defining issue. It's going to be an interesting two years. Campaign. It's going to be an well, year, year, and a, year and three quarters. I guess it's a, I guess it's a uh, gold-plated poll if it's in favor of someone, and the moment there's a question about it, well, you can't trust the pollsters. So that's well, you know, that's what we hear. It's uh, we 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 don't take it personally. Uh, I take it I take it all with with a sunny smile. We messengers, mm-hmm. as you know, Roy, are quite used to being uh, shot at uh, along the way as we deliver those messages. Yeah, well, I'm in the same leaky tub. And mm-hmm. where? why would we want to be anywhere else? Shachi, thank you very much for the time. It's a great life. Hey, if I don't get a chance to say it, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Thank you. Same to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Shachi Curl uh, from Angus Reed on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. You're listening to the Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. A story that Sean O'Shea broke on uh, Global News is, is just have to touch your heart. Uh, Ali Davari is 84 years of age. And he's in a medically induced coma in Germany. Mr. Davari cannot be brought home on a commercial flight. But RBC Insurance, who sold a travel policy for Mr. Davari, is refusing to pay for him to be brought back to this country or for any of the medical costs, including hospital charges. They've refused also to publicly address the issue. Joining me is Mr. Davari's son, Kevin. Uh, Kevin, good to speak with you, sir. Hi, Mr. Hi. And Sivan Tamarkin, partner at Samfiru Tamarkin LLP in Toronto, who's challenged travel insurance providers previously and on this program. Sivan, it's good to have you back. Hi, Roy. It's great to be with you. So, um, essentially what I said is the way it is, Sivan, right? Yes, it's, it's what you said. I mean, uh, Kevin obviously have a lot more details. He's been living with this. His father is still in Frankfurt, and they mm-hmm. literally have no way of bringing him back. Yeah. Kevin, tell us, please, what happened. Uh, what happened to your dad that he's in the hospital? Uh, actually, on December 1st, he was uh, coming from the city of Cologne to Frankfurt to take his flight to uh, Canada, to Toronto. Uh, basically, in the airport, he fell in, in um, Central Station, he fell, and uh, they took him to hospital. He was right away in uh, coma. Uh, they took him for uh, surgery. He was there for in coma for over 10 days, and after that, the doctors basically uh, reduced the medication for him to fall in sleep, in deep sleep. Since then, he's in, in basically deep sleep, and they cannot hold him in this situation for long. The problem is, uh, once he wakes up, he cannot be transported for at least two to three months until he goes through all the rehabs, and the doctors recommending for him to be immediately transported to Canada to be here with the family as well as uh, with his family doctor and everything else. Right. So you, you, your, your sister had bought travel insurance for your dad? 
Yes, she did buy a travel insurance, yes. And as far as you know, the policy would have covered for your dad to come back to Canada. And from what I understand in Sean's story, um, uh, travel insurers often like to bring uh, patients back to Canada who are ill overseas because they prefer to have them treated in this country. So, but RBC has told you what? Uh, I didn't talk to RBC directly. That was my brother was involved with and talked to them. Basically, they denied the coverage. Apparently, my father has uh, uh, is a diagnosed diabetic, which we didn't know about it until we talked to the doctor and. He said, yeah, he needs to, he's diabetic, and uh, the only question we had at that time was that nobody, why, why didn't he tell us the situation? So, I mean, there's nothing wrong with somebody being diabetic, but why didn't we know about it? Mm. And, but the doctor in Germany, uh, he told us, like so he told my sister, that he's not diabetic. He's, he's not. So we are standing between two, uh, <laughs> two different uh uh, information, but that all does not help my father to be here. No, he needs this to be home. This is the first thing, like talking to insurance and going through the whole procedure in order to uh, resolve the problem is going to take a very long time. And at this time, the only thing we hope is to be able to bring him back to Canada. And the bill now is already over $100,000. Uh, just the airlift going to be around $100,000 and obviously all the other bills. And my father is going for another surgery on Tuesday. Uh, for his uh, throat, I believe, it collapsed since he, he was in coma for so long. Uh, right after that, he has to be transported probably by mid to end of next week. He has to be here, or we don't know what to do, honestly. like. Okay, Simon, what are the options? What's the story from, from your perspective as the lawyer who deals with these issues? What's going on? It's extremely frustrating, Roy. Uh, and, and I see these kinds of cases all the time. Occasionally, they make their way to the media. You know, you go on a trip, whether it's within Canada or outside, to the States, to Europe, wherever it is, and you buy travel insurance. And in this case, uh, I haven't seen a denial letter from RBC. I don't know if there is one at this point. But what happens is the most common denial that I see uh, in these situations is that the insurance company, after the fact, after they sold insurance, deposited the premiums that they've collected, come afterwards when the person has been injured or something's happened that they require uh, assistance, and, and they say, okay, well, before we pay anything, we want to see your family doctor's records. Uh, we want to cross-check that with, you know, any answers you've given us when we fir- when you first took out insurance. And so the most common denial is on the basis of either a pre-existing condition that you didn't disclose to them, uh, or at the time that you took out the policy, between that time and when you actually went on the trip, perhaps something happened, you had a change in your in your health, and that was in the disclosure of the insurance company. And so what the insurance company says is, had we known that you had this condition, let's say it's diabetes or you know, a heart condition, something that's, by the way, completely unrelated to what perhaps you are now seeking medical attention for out of the country, but based on the fact that the insurance company didn't know about that pre-existing condition or health issue, they're saying, well, had we known about that, we would not have issued insurance. And so as far as we're concerned, uh, there's no contract, there's no insurance contract, so therefore there's a denial. And, and here's the problem. When I deal with these cases, it does take time. I have to get the insurance company's file, I have to get the medical records, you know, I have to then take on the insurance company. The problem is, just like in Kevin's case and his father's case here, is that we are dealing with an urgent situation. 
and the insurance company will not step up. They will not do anything. And so what's happened, they, they have effectively taken the premiums. And by the way, when they uh, deny the claims, they often issue the denial along with a refund check for however much you paid, the $50 or $40 or $100 for the insurance, which is obviously nothing compared to what it is that the person now needs, the family needs to get the person back. So from an option standpoint, you know, people like Kevin and his father, his family, they're stuck because mm-hmm. the government's not going to bring the person back. The yeah. insurance company is not stepping up. Yeah. No. So, and, and there's nothing, there's no regulatory remedy here, which is quite amazing to me. It is you very know, disturbing, extremely I, disturbing. Because it, it could be anybody, it could be yeah. anybody next. Let me just do this. I, I need to get this done because I want people to know you can go to GoFundMe.com. GoFundMe.com. Just go there and then type in the search bar, help Ali Davari. That's A-L-I. D-A-V-A-R-I, help Ali Davari, and that'll take you to the spot in on GoFundMe.com where you can make a contribution to help the Davari family get their dad back into Canada. Um, Kevin, uh, I, uh, I, I wish you all the, I mean, it sounds empty to say this, but I wish you all the very best, and I hope that, I, I, I know you've got a great uh, ally in uh, Sivan Tamarkin, and we've got to get your dad home. Thank you very much. Thank you. Really huh. appreciate your help. Well, anything we can do to get the get the word out. Sivan, always good to talk to you, and thank you for what you do for people in this country. Thank you, Rick. It's a pleasure to be with you. Take care. Sivan Tamarkin from uh, um, from uh, Semfiro Tamarkin LLP in Toronto. <laughs> I was going to sneeze. We'll come back after this. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. There is a um, Russian website, and there are, I believe, two more websites that are streaming hundreds of cameras in this country. They're streaming what the cameras are pointed at. So if you bought a security camera and you didn't change the default password, you might be being watched by Tremendously interested people all over the world. Yeah. What you're doing right now. Mm -hmm. And what is really disturbing is the very important personal information could be picked up by those cameras. Now, we know about television sets that were sending back um, video of what was going on in front of them. I think it was Samsung, wasn't it? And it was being sent back if you didn't do something or other to the television set. I forget what it was. And we know that um, there was a a young family, a young couple, and they heard a voice talking to their baby in the baby's bedroom. And that was talking through the, the baby monitor. So this is all stuff we need to be aware of and things you have to be careful of. Daniel Tobog joins me on the Roy Green Show on the Corus Radio Network. He's the CEO of Sci Intelligence Inc. Sci Intelligence Inc. There in Toronto, and Daniel is uh, one of the most highly respected internet and um, um, security internet security specialists in this country and beyond. Daniel, what what exactly is going on? I mean, I'm, I've just sort of painted a, uh, I've drawn a picture with a with a crude pencil, but can you just give us a, a better sense of what the issue is and what is happening and what the implications are. For sure, Roy. Thanks for having me on. Uh, you, you, drew, you drew quite a picture out there. The, the unfortunate part, this is reality today. 
uh, as we are having more and more devices that are connected to the Internet, the bad guys have a way to leverage vulnerabilities in them and actually get into our lives. Uh, and it's really interesting. You know, before it used to be just your computer and somebody could potentially hack that. Then it was mobile phones. And today, unfortunately, you have cameras, you have IoT devices, Internet of Things. These are all devices that are connected to the Internet. Your toaster, your fridge, your coffee machine, your light bulbs, and so on. So we are trading convenience in for the sake of security. And that is a very dangerous slope that we are at today. So the IoT is the Internet of Things, right? Correct. So these things... The toaster, the light bulb, the conveniences that we use every day that we don't give a second thought to, that we would never consider to be uh, capable of transmitting or sharing our private moments or our private activities or our private information. How do these devices uh, interact or create the reality where our privacy is invaded? Absolutely. See, we don't look at a toaster and say, you know, that, that could potentially, potentially be a security breach. You know, we're all programmed that, hey, we all lock our doors at night, and we all maybe might have an alarm, and we might have Pucci running around protecting the house, and we're good, right? Right. When you have all those new devices that have been introduced over the past four or five years, and now they're connected to the Internet, we are slowly letting people from the outside into our personal life. Because when they're able to breach those devices, that is just one gateway, one hop away from other things in our network, like our routers and, and uh, our computers and our, you know, you know, tablets and other things that are in the house that are supposedly secure. Um, you know, when you mentioned about the Russian website, what they basically have done, and there's about three main websites that are circulating out there, is they were able to penetrate com uh, 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 cameras in residential houses and offices, and they were able to peer through. Now, somebody might say, ha-ha, this is really funny. We can see somebody at reception. We can see somebody hauling some boxes. We see that guy eating an extra donut, and he really shouldn't have before the holidays. That's, that's all fun and games. The unfortunate part is that if they were able to access those cameras internally because of a weakness in the system, they're just a hop away from getting to the other servers that are located right beside the server for the cameras, and actually extracting confidential and private information. That's where the worry and the risk is. So they could, in theory or maybe in practice, once they get control of the camera, they can move the camera and they can record what they want to record, see what they want to see. Absolutely. And, and, use, it, and use your information to better their situation. Um, and, and they could do that for a protracted period of time. You'd never know. You probably probably wouldn't know unless they did something stupid like empty your bank account. Then you'd know something was going on. But if you did it system systematically and slowly, you could really harm people before they ever found out. Roy, you nailed it because 89% of all of these breaches go completely undetected. So unless they actually reached out and did something to you or stole data, stole information, stole money, actually start communicating with you, you would not know that this has occurred. That's the problem. Yeah. We already have seen companies that have been held ransom because they were able to create footage. And these are famous, you know, kind of well-known companies. Somebody was actually able to hack the cameras 
record video that would be very embarrassing to the company and would hold them ransom for an obscene amount of money in bitcoins, right? We already have seen that this year four times. So what's the antidote? What do you have to do to, if, if not totally eliminate the threat, then to minimize it? So what's very important to keep in mind here, unlike a physical danger, you can't just lock the door and put a lock on it, mm-hmm. okay? So it, it really, it's really, it's a mindset. You first of all have to start being cautious on what is it that actually that you have that's connected to the Internet. You know, there's been a trend over the past 12 on people are putting like sticky notes on their cameras, on their laptops, because they don't want to feel like somebody is looking at them. You know, that is, that, I know it might look ugly with that little paper, paper note on your laptop, but it's, 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 it's actually that's the right way to go. It's about being top of mind and being cautious. Number two, very important when you're configuring devices is to, again, if you're a business, make sure that somebody professional is configuring them so no default password, uh, no default username, and so on. So actually make it a little harder for the bad guys to take you down because on average these are all automated bots that are scanning the way and seeing if you have your default password or not okay. so it's about being cautious it's about changing default passwords and being aware let me ask you one more question uh, and i am change gears here i'm going to ask you about net neutrality such a a huge issue in the united states i don't think it's big in in canada um i may be wrong about that but uh, what do we need to know about the net neutrality issue well, the net neutrality is really an interesting thing. They, they, they try to push it for a while now, and it seems to be gaining crowd. And the FCC literally dismissed, uh, you know, kind of what people were trying to do, which is to, to, to say, hey, let's leave this alone for now. They overruled it uh, three to two. Um, I mean, we, in Canada, we don't have much to worry about yet. I haven't seen the telcos, the major ISPs here in Canada, uh, really provide too many comments on this. You know, at the end of the day, what happens is we, we used to have what I call a, a neutral <laughs> uh, Internet where, you know, you can do whatever you want. You can stream, of course, within the legal, legal perimeters. What they're trying to change in the U.S. is that now companies are going to be able, the ISPs are going to be able to make changes to the way people are streaming. Uh, you might have what I call the, the fast lane. If you pay a little more as an organization, you'll be able to get fast Internet or get served uh, more of the Internet data. Uh, or you're going to be in a different package. There, there's really a little bit of confusion going on about this. The largest ISPs in the U.S., uh, which was Comcast, Verizon, AT&T, basically said that they're not planning to change anything for now. But in a way, I always say our democracy for a free Internet is slowly starting to slip away. And that's the sad part. I, I, I'm looking forward to what Canada is going to do when it comes to its Internet provisions and, and legislation. I really hope they're going to leave it alone and let it be. Daniel, it's almost a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for the time today. Thanks, Thanks for having me on. Get better. Thanks. Daniel Tobak, Thank the you. CEO of Sci Intelligence Inc. in Toronto, Sci Intelligence Inc. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. All the facts aren't out yet. Uh, the police, I'm sure, are looking into it, and I'm sure that uh, when they uh, put all the pieces together, uh, they'll make a statement. So until then, uh, I, nobody should guess what's happening, and uh, we just have to sit and wait. There's uh, Mr. Paul Godfrey in uh, conversation with Global News on uh, the deaths of Barry and Honey Sherman. Uh, Mr. Sherman was the CEO and chairman of Apotex the pharmaceutical company that was founded in this country. A lot of talk, uh, a lot of uh, reporting, and uh, 
the family not happy with some of the things that were reported and some of the things police said or speculated perhaps. Ross McLean joins me, former Toronto police officer and security specialist. His Facebook page is Crime, Power, and Politics. Ross, good to speak with you. Uh, if you're uh, if you're investigating um, a situation, a tragic situation like this, where do you begin? Yeah, it's, it's really quite the story, Roy. I was actually at the scene of... Uh of the deaths on the Friday. I was, I was over actually at the local division at the time working on another uh, case for somebody doing some work when, when the call came in for the deaths. And first off, I just want to say uh, our, our thoughts are with the family, Definitely. Uh, with the friends. As, as you well know, Roy, uh, people throughout the world love this couple. They cared about this couple more so than just the fact that they were wealthy and they gave money and they were very good philanthropically. But I think that the family's concerned that they want them remembered in that light, not in light of the most recent tragic circumstances. So that that being said, we have the police who are on scene who received the call uh, from a person reported to be the realtor who went into the home and found the bodies and called 911. Uh, police have attended at the scene. Ambulance attended at the scene. Fire attended at the scene. They left the bodies there. There was no attempt really to take them and go save them, so they would have found them in a condition they thought they were already dead. The forensic pathologist, Roy, attended the scene, and the coroner both attended the scene on the Friday afternoon. They both attended and left. And the homicide squad has not been contacted to take over the lead in the investigation. So that's what the police are working with. That's why they've deemed it a suspicious death at this time. So when the homicide squad is not contacted and it's uh, 48 hours plus later that speaks to what well there's an indication i even noticed when i was on the scene uh roy when you're at a homicide scene there's a certain energy or electricity that's in the air amongst the amongst the officers that are there the activity that's going on right and i and i have to tell you when i was at the scene the snow was falling it was quiet there just wasn't that sort of energy or activity that I saw that one would normally see around something uh, had it been predicted to be a homicide of this of this magnitude. So the, the police are investigating. There has been some reporting that they're looking at this as a uh, murder-suicide. There ha- that's unconfirmed, but I know there are sources uh, who, who've, who've laid that out as to why they're, it's probably not going any harder than that. But the police, they're doing the autopsies. Uh, they started them yesterday afternoon. They'll have the full results, and they'll deal with the family as to what the, the cause was. And if that's the case, if it was something other than a criminal act, then the, the family will have to deal with informing the public. Yeah, and as far as police are concerned, they can only tell you what they can tell you, and that is they can tell you what they see, what they observe, and where they are in the investigation. And they can't, they can't, they can't make up a story. They have to tell you what the way things appear to them. That's exactly right. But as I said, based on the activity that I've seen, the way this is reported, and and since the family has complained, though, I'll tell you this, everybody's uh, really gotten a lot quieter, and there's not a whole lot of talk going on or chatter going on now Mm -hmm. about what happened with them. Uh, But, look, we'll have to wait and find out what the answer to this is. We can never look into the lives of people, Roy, as you know, and despite the fact whether they're wealthy or not, know the challenges that face those families. Yeah. And the instances that go on, we don't know. And as I said, I think the family wants them remembered uh, for the magnificent people they were. I tell you, my phone's been ringing off the hook from people who knew them 
saying they absolutely cannot believe that this is the case. There must be there must be something more to it because no one wants to believe that about people that they they love so much. You know, there are exceptional people in the world who managed then also to do the exceptional, and that is a very very rare combination. And uh, Mr. and Mrs. Sherman were those people. They were the exceptional people who did the exceptional and did so much good for people and for for uh, organizations and the th- philanthropic work. And that is what everyone wants to remember. That's and that's what people should remember. Absolutely, they should. And and I'll I'll just say from the family's point of view, Roy, one of the toughest things you can do as a police officer is you have to do a, a death notification. And one of the things you learn just in general is that people, when you first tell them it's an unexpected passing of somebody through tragic or criminal circumstances, one of the first things they do is go into denial about it, not wanting to believe it until they can tell for themselves for it. So I trust that the police and victim services and and others are helping to guide the family through this. Horrific for the family, difficult for the police as well, for the individual police officers. Oh, listen, I can tell you. I, I've been to some scenes that would keep me awake for for months afterwards, sort of thing. So yeah, it's difficult for for everybody involved in this one. And you know, God bless the family. And as I said, uh, they are sorely missed. I, I can't believe the the outpouring that I'm hearing from people who just they just can't believe this of this man and this yeah. woman. So yeah. we'll have to wait and see for more details, Roy. Most definitely, Ross. Thank you very much for the time. I appreciate it. Thank you, Roy. Ross McLean, and um, you can find Ross on Facebook. Crime, Power, and Politics, former Toronto police officer and security specialist. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Today's verdict really brings us little joy. The loss of Laura is no less painful today than when it was realized five years ago. Like any parent that loses a child, we can only move forward with the thoughts of what might have been. There's um, Clayton Babcock talking about... His daughter and the verdict yesterday, the uh, first-degree murder convictions of both uh, Dylan Millard and Mark Smitch. It is always horrific for the parents to stand up and talk about their kids and talk, and then have to talk about the uh, the brutal thugs who took their lives. I spent a lot of time in the company of the French family and the Mahaffey family after the murders of their daughters and the trial of Bernardo and unfortunately Homolka was never really held to account. But the family suffers so horribly. And then Millard in the Laura Babcock trial, of course, acted as his own lawyer. And I I imagine he in some deplorable way enjoyed uh, questioning Mr. Babcock Alex Pearson is my friend. She's uh, my colleague at um, Global News Radio, Global Talk Radio, and uh, her program is On Point on uh, Global News Radio, Monday to Friday evening. And Alex covered the first trial of Millard and Smitch day after day after day. That was on the death of the murder of Tim Bosma of Ancaster, and she's been observing this particular trial also um, as a broadcaster and with great interest. Uh, I'm sure, Alex, it wasn't wouldn't have been possible for you to just observe the second trial without having a lot of personal feelings after seeing the first trial on a day-by-day basis, personal feelings about these two individuals who've been for the second time convicted of first-degree murder. Well, they're garbage. They always were garbage. And because I covered the Bosma trial, I knew 
a lot of the evidence going into this trial, pretty much all of it. And all of it was covered under a sweeping publication ban. So it was a very difficult trial to cover because we couldn't talk about uh, what we knew, essentially. Um, and so that's what made it such a difficult uh, process to go through because we as a media knew so much more than what we were being told, that, that what we were allowed to tell. And so we had to wait. And now I think over the next weeks, you'll start to hear other stories coming out of what the jury did know, what the jury didn't know. And there's just so many complex stories that will leave a lot of people wondering, you know, what the hell was going on and why don't we know these things? But there were two trials that had to be protected from one another in order for really justice to be served. And, and I never doubted, Roy, that this jury would come back with first degree. I know people were worried because it was taking a long time, but I wasn't worried. It's just that they needed time to go through both of the um, be accused and come really to the same decision. It, it does take time. So how long did you spend covering the Tim Bosma trial? Five and a half months, every day. Every day, seeing these two individuals, knowing what they did. Yeah. And 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 you also spoke with uh, with Tim Bosma's widow. Um, yeah, they, well, they, it's interesting. In that trial, the Bosma, the Bosma army as they became known, mm-hmm. um, you know, we all sat in the same seats every single day. Not one person out of the media nor the Bosma family sat in any other seat. It was just a very kind of weird thing. It took on a life of its own. And um, so, yeah, we got to know Charlene. She, she tends to, to be a little bit standoffish. Um, but the family itself, Hank, um, his wife, the warmest people you can ever possibly think of knowing. Just the nicest, nicest people. Um, and so we all got to know each other over a series of months. And you get to know these people. And yeah. you can't help but feel very, very sorry for them. Yeah. You know, it, we, we spend a lot of time talking about the individuals who commit the crimes, who are, who are convicted, who end up going to jail, hopefully for their, the rest of their miserable lives. But the families... They have to live with what happened uh, day after day, week after month, year after year. And you've gotten to know uh, family victims' families. I've gotten to know them. And we should spend more time really concerned about them than the yeah. thugs who are going to be given every opportunity to uh, to appeal and, and, and appear before court uh, again. And Millard's got another case coming up, another trial coming up, right? Oh, yes, he's got his father's trial, and uh, that'll be in March. That's for Wayne Millard, whose death was initially deemed a suicide. But once Bosma's case really blew wide open, it was then that the police started to look at Hank's, or pardon me, uh, Wayne's uh, death, and then started looking at this missing person, Laura Babcock, her case. So it was really the Tim Bosma case yeah. that broke all of this open. But you're right, the families go through hell and back. And it's the, the frustrating part about the system. And I've seen it time and time again where the families come in and they literally, piece by piece, sentence by sentence, photo by photo, have to relive their child, their sister, their loved one's death. And it is raw and it is horrific. And all you can say is too bad because the system's not designed for you. In in this country, courts are designed to protect and preserve the rights of the accused. But I, I can tell you with certainty that those who go through this process who have lost loved ones um, I, they they go through hell. I don't yeah. know how they go through it. And you know, there have been uh, many times where the parole board has, or the prison system has told the victims that you must keep your victim's impact statement under mm-hmm. certain oh, yeah. amount of time or we're going to edit it for you. And oh, then yeah. the, the accused gets to see the victim's impact statement before yeah. it's read in court. And he, has to, and yeah. he or she has to approve of it. 
Oh, yeah. The, the victim impact statements, I know they're so sanitized um, to the letter and to the T that it's almost it gets to the point of why do we even have them? Because, you know, it's it's the time. It's the one time that these people can actually tell and look at that person and tell them what they think. And they have to really kind of rein it in. And, it, you know, it's quite it's quite something to watch. But I can tell you with certainty, certainly with the Bosmas and just from what I'm seeing with the Babcock family, again, such dignity, such like these people are are heroes because of what they go through and how they stand up and how they compose themselves and how they speak. And, and certainly with the Bosma family, because they are so um, they are they believe in their faith. They're Christians. They're God fearing. They relied upon that really to get them through. And there was never any speaking of malice or hate or retribution or any of that. They are above that. You know, they know that Millard and Smitch got what they deserved. And in the end, it remained about Tim Bosma. And this should remain about Laura Babcock. Because as I mentioned, as we spoke about this yesterday, Laura really was the one that was forgotten in this. Wayne to a certain degree, but certainly Laura, because we couldn't talk about her for two or three years. She couldn't be spoken about because as soon as uh, Millard and Smitch were arrested, they had to preserve the integrity of these trials. And certainly when the Bosma trial was ongoing, a lot of it was about preserving um, the evidence and the process moving forward for the Laura Babcock matter. So really, she has been forgotten in this, and I and I hope her family can find some peace in this now that it's over. You know, there's something I, I know that uh, is disturbing you and you find difficult to uh, to uh, accept the way things turned out. I'd like yeah. to ask you about that, and that is the, there was a, an assist by a, a lawyer in Toronto in getting to Millard, letters from his girlfriend, or to his girlfriend, letters from Millard from from prison to Christina Nudga. So what's the story there? We've been sitting on this story for two and a half years, and it's been locked and put away under a publication ban. And this has to do with a Toronto lawyer who, you know, this should tell you everything you need to know. His uh, handle on Twitter was Cocaine Lawyer, and he put pictures up of himself in his Lamborghini. So I guess he's made a healthy living off of who he represents, but he was initially uh, retained by Della Millard, and it is believed and it is alleged that he was the one that got these letters that were such crucial, crucial evidence in this trial. But it is alleged that he would get these letters, about a hundred of them, out of the jail from Millard, give them to his mother, and then the mom would give them to Christine Nuga. And in these letters is such unbelievable writing. You know, in one of them, it talks. About, uh, Millard is talking himself that he doesn't want the jury to know that he's, a, you know, seem to think that he's a psychopath, and and it gives directions to Nudga of how she should testify, what witnesses she should talk to, how she should tell the stories. I mean, it's a clear obstruction of justice. And these letters were going out of the jail to this woman, and there there are an awful lot of people, Roy, who should be hanging their heads in shame. Yeah, that's awful. That's just... It is awful. That's awful. It really... Because re- had it been successful, had these letters never been found, yeah. first of all, yeah. and had uh, Christine Nugda followed the letters to the T, I mean, she lied every which way to Sunday, but had these letters not become evidence, there's every chance that these guys would have walked. Can you imagine? And, and by the way, this lawyer has never been suspended, penalized, law society won't talk. It is a shame, and it's a complete disgrace to the profession. And I can tell you, from speaking to a lot of lawyers, 
they're disgusted by this. You know, I'm getting a flashback. I'm getting a flashback to Carla Homolka. Look, I know it's the law. I know that the that yep. Millard had the right to defend himself. I know that. I know all that. Yep. But I found it absolutely abhorrent mm-hmm. that a man who is already convicted of first degree murder, mm-hmm. and there's obviously very little doubt among most people that he's going to be found guilty or that he committed the murder of of, of Laura Babcock, and yet he has the right mm-hmm. to create his own little private inquisition of Laura Babcock's father in the courtroom. That's just yep. mind-numbing. Yeah, it's not the first time I've seen a couple of people represent themselves, and uh, they do so with the help of the court, which means they get a lawyer appointed to them at our cost to help them through. But Della Millard lost all his money uh, after the Bosma ruling, so he had very high-priced lawyers going into that trial and during that trial. But once the conviction came down, a judge froze the assets because, of course, if he's guilty of killing his father, Wayne Millard, why the heck should that man be paying for all these expensive lawyers? So that estate is protected. But he could have gotten legal aid. He could have gone through that process. And um, he chose to represent himself. And that, and that surprises me not at all because he's a complete narcissist. And this has never been about anybody else but Dellen Millard. Um, so so they, 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 they plead not guilty. And yet they're playing with people because Smitch created a song. Yep. With lyrics many people interpret as being about Laura Babcock being yep. killed. He did one about he did one about Bosma too. Yeah, and then Laura Babcock's mm-hmm. former boyfriend asked yeah. to meet with yeah. Millard, who he knew only slightly, because he found on her phone bill that eight of her last calls had been made to Dellen Millard's phone. When the two of them met, Millard told Sean Lerner he ought to have yep. quote no reasonable expectation of finding her. Yeah, Sean Lerner is uh, a really unsung hero. He's the one guy outside of her family that went to the police and implored them to look at this case, and they ignored it. So he knew something had gone wrong with Laura. They weren't even dating at the time, but he cared enough about her well-being that he wanted something done about it. And again, this goes back to it was never about Laura because everyone kind of forgot about her. She was an adult, adult still missing, so the police didn't take it seriously until... Bosma went missing, was dead, and then the police opened up the cases and went, oh, my God. And they started going back and seeing all these links and then reopening cases. It, it is, this is a precedent-setting case. It will be one for the book in, in so many ways. And, and we will start unfolding things, looking at the um, investigative process, uh, who slipped up, who didn't do what, where was, was evidence missing, where were the red flags, and uh, it'll be a real teaching case, and, and certainly the, the murderer uh, being his own lawyer, because there were actually jurors who had no idea about the previous convictions. And when they found out in court yesterday, uh, a couple of colleagues of mine who covered the trials in Hamilton told me that they, they were like, what? Are you kidding me? They were just appalled. Yeah. We have about a minute left now. The judge has an opportunity. The previous judges in this country for decades, for centuries, really haven't had. It's just a fairly recent law, change in the law. He can choose to sentence these two animals, and that's not fair to animals. He can choose to sentence these two to consecutive 25-year minimum, uh, 25 to life. Not, not, uh, what's that word, um... Oh, uh, you know. It's a, yes, I know. I know. Yeah, so we're both we're drawing, yes. both drawing a blank on the word. But he can choose to sentence them consecutively. Yes. And, and look, I, I, I have every faith in this judge that he will do the right thing, and he will sentence them 
uh, accordingly. Right. Um, the reason, you know, they, they get an automatic 25. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, their life, they're going to jail for life. But yeah. it's, again, you don't, do you want these people getting the eligibility of parole so that they can drag the families once again through this process? No, and no, family no, because that, cause that happened. Because, Alex, yeah. that happened time and again when we had yeah. Section 745. 15 yeah. years later, the parents were dragged yep. into the courtroom. Yes, I know. It, cases that I did 20 years ago that I think, oh, they're gone and done. Yeah. And now just going into the parole here. Here they are again. The yeah. Yeah. Alex, thank you very much. Congratulations on the new show. It sounds you, great. Sir. You sound great. And, uh, thank you. Always you sound better. I'm glad you're my colleague. Uh, thank you. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.